you, you warriors, you. See, what you didn't know is that by coming to church this morning, you got dragooned into being free labor for this evening. So if you choose to stay, but we'll be caref- keeping careful notes of who doesn't. Uh, just kidding. But Selena Keener did ma- is making us lunch right now. So that'll be super cool. So uh, welcome to Regen. My name's Kyle. I'm the pastor here. Uh, this is a really short service this morning, um, simply because, what's that? I mean... No. Yes, okay. Yes, uh, this is a real short service because the main thrust is for uh, tonight at 6 p.m. So um, we'll see you back here for that. Um, if you can't be here for this evening's Christmas Candlelight, Grace Campus Christmas Candlelight is tomorrow night at 7. So it's always an interesting time because people from there are like, oh, well, we have plans, we'll see you tonight. And people from here are like, oh, we'll see you tomorrow night. So that's really great. Um, so I'll, how about I, I don't know, do I, do I pray? Okay, yeah, a lot of, lot of emails, a lot of emails about tonight, so this is the red-headed stepchild service of our year. Um, yeah, let's pray. Yeah, or whatever-headed stepchild. Yeah, right, yeah. Uh, Father, thank you so much for your goodness and for your presence and for who you are, and so this morning we just want to click pause, we want to be in your presence together. Um, Lord, we look ahead to what we're gonna, what you want to do this evening at Christmas Candlelight. God, uh, for all of these friends that we've been inviting, for the people that have seen Facebook ads and Facebook shares, God, would you uh, bring them into this place and clear their hearts such that they can hear the good news of your son and uh, our Savior. His name is Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand up so we can sing together for a hot minute. This, this, this is... Uh, this is a fun day because it's a real simple morning. Um, also, uh, at Regen, people come like 15 minutes late. So that means at like 1130, we're going to be wrapping up. And everybody's going to be like, what's happening? So that's going to be really fun. So um, if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Luke 2 for just, Matthew 2, Matthew 2 for just a couple of minutes. Uh, just a couple of minutes. They can wax poetic a little bit more. We had our choir cantata at the last campus. So Matthew's gospel, Matthew's gospel is written with a more Jewish audience in mind. So that's why you have a lot more quotes from the Old Testament. Luke's gospel, there's two places where, the, where we hear kind of the Christmas story in scripture. Matthew's gospel kind of written to Jewish audience. Luke's gospel written to more of like a Greco-Roman audience. So there's just kind of a different way of thinking. Um, Matthew's gospel is kind of aiming at, exp- at kind of connecting the birth of Jesus to the rest of the Old Testament. The, the Lucan account is to kind of help people with no biblical background get into that. So we're looking at Luke, uh, Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to, Matthew, Matthew chapter 2. It says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod, verse 3, was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of the religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? So stop there and notice King Herod is supposed to be king of the Jews. Functionally, he's a political pawn of the Roman government, but in title, he's king of the Jews, so he should be first among the Jews, and he doesn't know messianic prophecy. 
So here he is, there's pagans in his court, these people that would have, that, I mean, they're wise men, so they're in touch with probably Old Testament teaching because of the time that uh, Israel spent in exile in Babylon. Um, Their kind of culture and their scriptures would have been something that the wise men would have studied because they would have been studying all kinds of scripture. But they know a little bit more, they know that it's his star, Right, So they come to follow it. Meanwhile, the king of the Jews, there's this contrast that Matthew's trying to present. There's this contrast that King Herod, king of the Jews, doesn't know. So he has to call together the teachers of religious law and say, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? Verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will shepherd the people, who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. So there's a... Old Testament quote, verse 7, then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared, and then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find, ba- find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. Plot twist, Herod has no interest whatsoever. Herod has no interest whatsoever in worshiping the child. He doesn't care. He doesn't want to worship the child. Here's why he's, he, he simply wants to know where the child is. Because in verse 13 of this chapter is when Herod initiates uh, really a pogrom where he kills every child under a certain age just in case it might be Jesus. So he says, After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. And it went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Now notice the language there. It says they saw him with his, they saw the child with his mother. The wise men account, contrary to your little manger scene on your mantle, comes after Jesus has been alive for a little while. So he's not a baby when the wise men find him, um, despite all the songs. Actually, what's super interesting the Sunday after Christmas, let's just have a church history lesson. The, tw- when the 12 days of Christmas begins on, Jan- on December the 25th. So this is kind of a liturgical year thing. That's why we have that song, right? If you're smart, you're thinking 12 days of Christmas, but it takes me 25 days to get to Christmas. So maybe they're giving like a partridge and a pear tree in half over the first two days, right? How do we get to the math? Okay, and so uh, the Sunday after Christmas is called the Feast of the Epiphany, and that's usually when we celebrate or in church kind of time, mark the wise men's coming. Um, And that's usually when we preach that text. As Protestants and kind of just in our common culture, these things have kind of blended together, right? So that the wise men and the shepherds, like we're all having this big party uh, at at the the manger, but that's not how it works. But anyway, so they, they go and they find Mary. They see the child. That Greek word means little boy. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house, saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. They opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And when it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route. Do you notice this? They don't, they don't go back to Herod. When it, comes, when it came time for them to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. So this is a fascinating little piece of text, because here's what you have, is you have these wise men, these three kings, 
coming out of the East. Wise men in this time were this blend of astrologer and astronomer and religious scholar and philosopher. They were widely read, very intelligent men of an upper class in their culture. And they see this star rise in the sky sometime after the birth of Jesus. And it's a star that's so unusual that these wise men are prompted to go and follow it. And it turns out that when they find the star, it embroils them in palace controversy, right? These wise men go to the king of the Jews and ask him, hey, by the way, where can we find the Messiah that you've been looking for? Expecting the king, who they assume is a religious Jew, to be able to answer a religious Jewish question. And he can't. He can't. So he calls together his scribes, he has, calls together his cheat sheet, and then goes back and tells them, what he knows. Again, there's this drama in the text, and we preached it this way a couple years ago. There's this drama in the text that the unreligious receive Christmas better than the religious. The more religious you are, the more likely you are to miss out on Christmas. And so this star to which they saw, it points to a small town called Bethlehem, and when they go to the place the star pointed, they find a house, they go inside, they find a little boy hiding in his mother's skirts, and they say that this brought them great joy. It says they were filled with joy, something common in the Christmas accounts, right? That it's always joy that they are filled with, whether it's the shepherds, whether it's the angels announcing good news of great joy for all people. And they find not a baby, they find a child. And when they find this child, they fall to their knees. These pagan men, steeped in other religions, worship this child and they offer him gifts that you would only give a king, gold and frankincense and myrrh. When we consider the miracle of Christmas, we think about that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever should believe in him would not perish, would have eternal life. We, we consider the miracle of Christmas. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of God's only son. We, we consider the miracle of Christmas. The words of St. Athanasius, he says, it was our sorry case that caused the word to come down, our transgression that called out his love for us so that he made haste to help us and to appear among us. It is we who were the cause of his taking human form. This is why I, I somewhat joke, but not really, when you see these little signs that say Jesus is the reason for the season. It's wrong. Jesus isn't the reason for the season. You are. It is we who were the cause of his taking human form. And for our salvation, that in his great love, he was both born and manif manifested in a human body. These wise men stood before the love of God, born and manifested in human body. They, they, they see a miracle attested to by angels and stars and shepherds, and they bow and worship. And we, and we read this, this little line, this they bow and worship, like we read anything else, but you have to kind of tap into uh, what we would call your ancient Israelite. If you're going to read the Bible, you need to have a mental ancient Israelite, so go ahead and find him or her. Tap into your ancient inner Israelite and realize that when it says they bow down and worship him, that this is conversion language, right? This is these men who are kind of cosmopolitan and tolerantly intermixing their religions forsaking that to bow down and worship him. These, these wise men are wise because they embody a spirit of the age that is present for them. They embody a spirit of what we would call syncretism, 
Syncretism was the major way that the empires of the East at this time kind of practice. And syncretism basically says, instead of picking one God and making everybody believe in that one God, why don't we kind of mash them all up and let everybody kind of worship how they want to? And if it's a little bit of this religion and a little bit of this religion and a little bit of this religion kind of all melted down and put together, that's just as good a starting place for religion as anything else. That's what these wise men think. They're they're, they're these tolerant, cosmopolitan, thoughtful, uh, intelligent men. And that's why they're called wise men. And they're living in a culture that's not too different from ours, right? There's this constant... The work we do when we read the Bible is to not notice how different we are from them, but how very the same we are. And as our culture in the U.S. becomes increasingly spiritual and post-religious, we become more and more and more like the world of the Bible. And so here are these men that embody some of the values of our own culture, of tolerance and and being thoughtful. Um, uh, You know, these men would probably have the coexist bumper sticker as a tattoo on their arm, right? And, and, and in other words, these wise men have a lot in common with us, especially those of us who call on the name of Jesus and trust in something else. Those of us who put our trust in Jesus and hedge our bets. Those of us who trust in Jesus and really like our hobbies, really like our culture, really like our comfort, I mean, really like our money, really like our success. We're no less syncretistic than the wise men that we meet in Matthew 2. We blend Jesus with the American dream or the ideals of a political party, with materialism, with sexual liberation, with money. The list goes on, but we, we like to blend. We like to blend. And yet these wise men, when they are confronted with Jesus, they change. They bow down and worship Jesus. They hold a coronation. That's what's happening here. This isn't just a tender Christmas moment. They're, they're holding a coronation. They are crowning Jesus king. It's like the song that we sing. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? I'll tell you, this is Christ the king whom shepherds guard and angels sing. And later in the song it says, so bring him incense, gold, and myrrh. Come, come peasant and king to own him. The king of kings salvation brings. Let loving hearts Enthrone him, let loving hearts enthrone him. Years later, Jesus is now grown up. He's in the throes of his public ministry. He's proclaiming this kingdom of which he is king. King Jesus, now grown, crowned, is proclaiming his kingdom, which Jesus is saying over and over again in the Gospels is at hand. That this place, this realm, where what God wants done is done, is right now through him, through his life, is breaking into the world and breaking into human lives. Jesus is announcing this, and he tells a short story. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. A merchant is someone who buys and sells things. A merchant on the lookout for fine pearls. When he discovered one pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. This is called the parable of the pearl of great price. Jesus says that his kingdom the very life that he lives and offers to share with us is so valuable, is so worthwhile, 
is so worthy of obtaining and possessing that it's like a merchant, a man or a woman of no small wealth, who finds one pearl while looking for pearls, happens to find one pearl of great value and sells everything he or she owns to possess that one pearl. And Jesus says, I am like the pearl. This kingdom that I bring, Jesus says, is like that pearl. It costs more than anything, but it is worth more than anything in the world. It costs more than anything, but it is more valuable than anything in the world. Jesus reminds us then of two things in this little parable, or maybe three. The first is that his kingdom, this life he invites us to lead, is costly. It's costly. It costs us everything. And just when we think that Jesus has had his way, that we've given Jesus enough, when we think that we've given Jesus, frankly, more than enough, we find Jesus asking for more, more time, more attention, more affection, more loyalty, more space in our calendars, more space in our, in our schedules. It costs us the most prized possession of any American. It costs us our comfort. The most dangerous place to be is in between an American Christian and their comfort. Move that cheese, mess with that a little bit, and you are in their sights and there is no amount of like late night YouTube yelling and trolling that matches the wrath with which an American Christian will come after the person who messes with their comfort. And that's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus does. And this should come as no surprise, even though it does, as Jesus calls us further out from our comfort, as Jesus invites us to give and give and let go and let go, we're shocked as if we have forgotten that Jesus, the king of the universe, was born not in a palace, but in the squalor of a cattle stall. We forget that this Jesus, who is king, does not, like Buddha, just spend all night under a tree, walk around teaching, and then slip into nirvana peacefully, what happens is, is Jesus is killed and he forgives his killers. He is tortured and he forgives his torturers. He is abandoned and yet he forgives those who abandon him. We cling to our pastimes and our hobbies and our time at home watching Netflix and fail to realize the demands of his kingdom, this kingdom to which when we chose the name of Jesus, we became participants and co-heirs with him and citizens of heaven. But notice as Jesus talks to us about how costly his kingdom is, he also talks about how infinitely satisfying it is, how infinitely comforting in a different kind of sense, how infinitely rewarding, right? Jesus says that if my kingdom is costly, it is also uh, something so satisfying and so rewarding that it make that the reward we reap far outweighs the cost that we pay. The reward that we reap far outweighs the cost that we pay. Jesus says that whatever following him may cost us, we will be compensated significantly both in this life and in the life to come, in the life beyond death. That's what Jesus means when he talks about eternal life or abundant life. He does not talk about a quantity of life. Believe in Jesus and you will get to live forever. Jesus is speaking of a quality of life. 
a quality of life that begins now as a foretaste of what forever will be like. And it is a life so satisfying, a life so satisfying that the cost will be significantly and eternally outweighed by the benefits. See, it's, it's always about cost versus benefit. It is always about cost versus reward. And in this parable, Jesus is saying the reward significantly outweighs the cost. I have a little book at home called Stories Jesus Told. And uh, it's got little parables in it. And my favorite one is the one of the pearl because it tells a story about a merchant who has a lot of things. He has five fridges full of fizzy drinks and money stuffed under his mattress. And uh, because it's an English thing, it's an English written book, like the fancy England, wherever that is, over that way. And uh, it, it talks about how he has a fluffy feathered hat that it is his favorite, F-A-V-O-U-R-I-T-E, right? So it's just, it's immediately fancy and classy. And so uh, the man, this merchant, a merchant is someone who buys and sells things, goes and, and he sees this pearl and so he goes and he sells his fridges full of fizzy drinks and his house with the fish pond in the front and he takes all the money out of his mattress and it shows him in his nightshirt and his fluffy feathered hat with a wheelbarrow full of money going off to, the, to buy the pearl. And he keeps, every, he's selling everything, but not his fluffy feathered hat because it's his favorite, right? So he goes to the merchant, he goes to this guy who has the pearl and he says, I want to buy the pearl. And the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the guy that's selling the pearl says, you know what, you're $5 too short. But if you give me your hat, I will give you the pearl. And the kid's story says something so compelling it says, the merchant laughed. At the thought of giving up what was his favorite, like his most prized thing, it says, the merchant laughed. And he gives him his hat, and he takes the pearl, and the last page of this is like, the merchant in his nightshirt with the pearl in his hand, like kicking up his heels. What makes the merchant laugh? What would make the merchant laugh, except that the thought of possessing the pearl far outweighs the thought of possessing the hat. The thought of possessing the pearl far outweighs the thought of possessing the hat. The reward of it. And for the merchant in in Matthew, the merchant in Matthew, the reward isn't how we tend to think of Jesus. It is not what the pearl will give him, nor what the pearl will do for him nor the security that comes from having the pearl, the, the reward is nothing short of having the pearl and that's it. And Jesus says, following me is like following the pearl, that I am the most valuable thing, not because of what I can do for you, not because of what I can get, like not what you can get from me, but simply possessing who I am. Sky Jathani has a really great book on this, by the way, called With, because he talks about how we have all of these postures toward God, how I want to get things for God, or I want to get things from God, that I live life under God, I'm afraid of him. But really what God wants for us is just to be with him. And that's perhaps a message that we see most clearly at Christmas, right? Because God is Emmanuel, God with us. That's all he wants. And from possessing that pearl, there are all these other ancillary benefits, but really we often chase after Jesus for the ancillary benefits instead of just knowing Jesus, which is why John Piper, when he says about heaven, this is so important because he would say, when you, and this is the second time we brought this up in this series, that if you're interested in heaven because of what you will have in heaven or get to do in heaven or get to see in heaven, that's not what you want. Heaven belongs to the people who are entirely satisfied by possessing the pearl and that's it.
Heaven belongs to the people that are entirely satisfied in possessing the pearl, and that's it. Heaven belongs to the people who would be satisfied if there was nothing in heaven but Jesus. Kind of calls us to reflect on, why am I following Jesus? Is it because I want him to be with me and to do things for me and to give me peace and comfort and security? Or is it because I want him? This verse in Matthew 11 is kind of, if you have like a life verse, if I had a verse that kind of defines who I am in my ministry, it's this. Because I'm constantly asking myself, what am I trading for? What am I trading the value of the pearl for something lesser? How am I kind of hedging my bets? It gets to this idea of Jesus and, because what Jesus wants for us is to possess the pearl. He wants to give us the reward and the greatest gift of knowing him intimately, personally, and deeply forever. That's what he wants for us. These wise men, they fall at the feet of Jesus and they offer him gifts that are fit for a king because they realize that Jesus only was worth everything. They had tasted and seen of a thousand delights. They had plunged the depths of a thousand spiritual mysteries. And in the end, what they needed and wanted and desired most, they realized upon seeing this child, they wanted this Jesus they wanted this Jesus. The merchant sold everything he had to possess the pearl because he realized upon seeing the pearl, upon seeing Jesus, that everything he ever needed and wanted and desired was this Jesus. At Christmas, we're called to lay aside our constant Jesus ands. The pearl and. Our constant questing after possessing something in addition to the call of the wise men instead, the call of the merchant is the same. Let loving hearts enthrone him. Let loving hearts enthrone him. That's the call of Christmas for us. It is to give Jesus the throne room of our hearts. It is to give Jesus the throne room of our hearts. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. We're going to sing. And then I'll give you more instructions. Lord Jesus, you are worthwhile and we give ourselves to lesser things left and right. Uh, we give ourselves to lesser things left and right. And uh, would you increase our appetite and our hunger for that which ultimately satisfies, Lord Jesus? And would you um, kind of help us reorder our loves, help us reorder our loves so that we might um, more faithfully love you and not be distracted by these lesser things. Take away our ands as we enter this Christmas season so that we might be the people of Jesus only. Jesus only. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God, thank you so much that you are with us in the midst of what we walk through, that we're never alone. Um, God, we just want to share that at this season and experience that and celebrate that. And so uh, for us, God, today, help us to be encouraged. And tonight, help us to be equipped as we uh, share your gospel with people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.